0: I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. So one of mine and Teresa's passions um, is church unity. We really love working uh, outside of denominational lines, working or across denominational lines rather uh, with other Christians and not just being about our brand, as it were, but, but trying to pursue the larger kingdom uh, of God. And so through a series of events, um, this has led to my involvement with serving on the board of a nonprofit called the American Friends of the Anglican Center in Rome. I can say more about that work another time. But uh, in conjunction with this work a few years ago, we had just an immense privilege of being uh, in Rome on a trip to visit the center and to do some work with them. It's a rough place to have to do some work. And we were preparing for a day of meetings, and uh, we were in our, our hotel room. And so we hear a knock on the door. Um, I'm in my, my priest get up, ready to go, uh, just waiting on Teresa. Um, probably shouldn't make any kind of editorial comment about waiting for Teresa here. <laughs> it happens occasionally. Um, so I'm waiting for Teresa, and someone knocks on the door, and it's breakfast that's, that's being delivered, which is delightful. We actually uh, didn't expect that, and so a lady pushes um, a cart into the room, uh, you know, with just some delicious Italian fare, and we felt like royalty. Now remember, we're in Rome, and I'm in my priest gear, black suit, collar, Teresa was just finishing on uh, putting makeup on in the bathroom out of sight. And so I'm fumbling, trying to get a tip to the lady, and uh, out pops Teresa from the restroom uh, to say hello and thank you. And uh, again, we're at the epicenter of the Roman Catholic Church in Rome whose priests quite notoriously are not allowed to marry. So this woman's eyes perk up and she quickly exits the room And I sense that I probably will need to engage in some damage control. By the time we've made it to the front desk to check out, it's clear that news has spread about the priest and the woman upstairs. It's the case of mistaken identity. So I exclaimed to the people at the front desk, clarifying, I'm an Anglican priest or an Episcopal priest. We can marry. Well, it took a while to explain it all. But eventually, they laughed and we laughed. And then they made sure to inform me that I need to tell the Pope to let their priest marry too. <laughs> well, let's just say that Pope Francis hasn't replied to my letter. Identity matters doesn't it? And how people perceive us, it matters. Who am I? It's a good question of identity. Where am I going? Who am I becoming? How do people view me? Well, such questions of human identity are at the root of all human religious thought. In fact, Pope Francis, another pope, Um, has, uh, or I'm sorry, Pope John Paul II has written a letter in which he says that these questions of identity are uh, in the sacred writings of Israel. They're in the writings of Confucius and Buddha. They appear in the poetry of Homer and in the tragedies of Euripides and Sophocles as they do in the philosophical writings of Plato and Aristotle, questions of human identity. Eventually, all of us bump up against them. But Jesus starts off with the prior question that I think must be answered. Apparently, Jesus thinks so too. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. This is the question posed by Jesus to the disciples and to Peter and to us. And in many ways, it's the most important question that we can ever consider as individuals or as families because we will always struggle with our own identity if we're unclear on the identity of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis thought a lot about this question, the identity of Jesus, and in light of it, he wrote the following lines, they're quite famous. He wrote, I am trying to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, those are strong words from Lewis. And whether or not you find his argument compelling, he hits on the question that matters, I think, the identity of Jesus. So how do you answer Jesus' question? Who do you say that I am? On the other hand, uh, you know, there's a former bishop of South Carolina that uh, I knew and loved, Ed Salmon, who was famous for saying, it's not what you think about God that is most important, but it is what God thinks about you. Who God is does not change based on our opinion. So, who does God say that you are? This is precisely the turn that Jesus makes with Peter, saying, Peter, Kaphos, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. And I think that this is how God works, revealing who we are in light of who He is. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the head, we are the body. He is the good shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the source of love, we are His beloved. We see all of this in Scripture, and more, that He spanned the distance from heaven to earth, becoming disfigured and broken so that we could become refigured and made whole. There's a place called the Church of the Jesu in Rome, which is the mother church of the Jesuit order, a Roman Catholic order of priests. And there was for some time at this church, a kind of beautiful Baroque church, a set of statues that are some of the most beautiful statues I've ever seen. One is Jesus who is on the cross. Disfigured. His body is clearly racked with pain and suffering. And of course, that's not abnormal for a crucifixion statue. What is different with this statue is that Jesus is actually more than disfigured. He's missing arms. His head is contorted. It's hard to even say whether or not this really is Jesus, and yet the observer knows intuitively that it is. It is he who has taken on infirmities. Now, what is perhaps even more powerful is that sitting just in front of the statue of Jesus is this other statue of a woman. She sits in a wheelchair. Her body, too, is contorted and twisted, marked with a lifetime of pain and suffering. And yet, in her lap sits a mask This mask represents her shame, her fear, the rejection she has felt from those around her, but she has finally taken it off. She now knows who her Savior and Lord is. He is the disfigured one. He is the one who has taken on suffering to save them from it, to save her from it. He's the Messiah. You see, it's only in light of her seeing Him that she can now finally reveal herself and know herself as the beloved, the beloved of God. And so it is with us. Jesus is waiting for us, I think, to take off our masks, to refuse to live plastic lives, to remove our our shame and our guilt and our fear in His strength by His grace, and to see our brokenness on Him in the cross, because if we don't know Him as Savior, as the one who allows us to be free of these identity markers, we will never truly know ourselves and the freedom of a larger life. And yet the irony is that the larger life that Jesus calls us to is embodied in the call for us to be living sacrifices, as Paul points out to us in Romans this morning. In other words, if Jesus is the Messiah, if He is the Savior of the world, as Peter claims, and of course I think He is, then partial lordship just won't do. The call to be living sacrifices demands every part of who we are. And so this is precisely why Paul will say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Lordship of Christ has something to say about how we eat or how we treat our bodies, how we treat the bodies of others and what we do with our bodies. Paul even says our bodies are wrapped up with our spiritual worship. And so that means that to be spiritual necessarily involves our physicality but also being a living sacrifice, in Paul's words, involves the renewal of our minds and thinking with sober judgment, to use his language. That is, true faith is not blind faith. To read any of the great theologians of the church is to understand this point. Intellectual laziness has no place in the church. Now, Being a living sacrifice also involves our gifts as individuals and as families. Each of us has a part to play, from the teacher to the leader to the giver to the compassionate. We all clearly don't have the same function, Paul says, but that also means that we can't be the church without one another. We can't be the church as an individual. We cannot be the church in isolation. Our life in Christ is necessarily corporate. So, in short, recognizing Jesus as Lord involves our physical and our mental and our corporate and our gifted lives. And this is where we see Christianity being not just some kind of sky in the pie philosophy, but it is on the ground, practical living. I heard a cliche once that goes like this I don't always love cliches, but I thought this was good. Faith can move mountains. But don't be surprised if God gives you a shovel. I had the uh, great privilege of watching a movie a few years ago about a church that heeded the call of Christ and literally took up their shovels. You may have heard of the movie. It was called All Saints. And it was about an Episcopal church in the Diocese of Tennessee, where I just came from, in Smyrna, Tennessee. And this church was on the verge of shutting their doors when they decided... They were going to serve as living sacrifices. And so they embraced a Burmese refugee community around them who showed up on their doorstep and they turned the rural land around their church into a farm to feed and to create industry for these refugees. Their sacrificial call involved everyone. It it required strong minds to plan, strong bodies to work the land, many givers to fund the work, and it, it couldn't have been done alone. It seems extraordinary that this happened, and that someone made a movie about it, an Episcopal church, and in a way it is extraordinary. But when I hear that story, I just hear a story of the church being the church. Living as the body of Christ. Our call will necessarily be different. Our context is different. But even if and when we can't go to church, this never means that we cannot be the church to a broken world around us. So in closing, you see, it is, it's all the saints and sinners who make up the body, who bear witness to the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we do this in many ways with our physical lives, our intellectual lives, our corporate and practical lives. And Jesus says to each and every one of us today, who do you say that I am? what would it look like for you to answer as Peter did and thus to come to know yourself more fully? What would it look like for us to answer as all saints in Smyrna has done? What might it look like for us to be together a living sacrifice? Well, I'm looking forward to finding out. Amen.